This is Don Hinckley, and I'm here at the tracking station at Cape Canaveral. Where, for the first time, we'll be able to broadcast an in-flight conversation with an astronaut. Astronaut Jose Jimenez just cleared the launching pad three minutes ago. Let's see if we can get him. Jose Jimenez, Jose Jimenez, can you hear me? Come in, please, come in, please. Hello, what, what did you say? <laughs> come in, please. Oh, I want to, I want to. Mr. Jimenez, Mr. Jimenez, Mr. Jimenez, you're screaming a bit loud. Your mic is turned up too high. The mic? Wait a minute, I'll turn it on. You mean you were screaming that loud? Don't tell me you're afraid. Okay, I'll keep it a secret. Tell me, sir, could you direct your attention to the porthole? Okay, I will direct my attention on the porthole. What do you see? My reflection. <laughs> I mean, I mean, sir, what, what does it look like? Very scared. <laughs> Is there anything obstructing your view? Well, yes, there's a moisture forming. On the glass? No, in my eyes. <laughs> your... You're not crying, sir. Gee, a guy can't have any secrets out here. Well, is everything A-OK -okay now? No, it's still B-A-D. Uh, and it's going to get W-O-R-S. <laughs> sir, I... Yes. Sir, I... Keep talking. I like your company. Sir. Sir? Yes? I just want to find out what you see. Is there anything up there that you didn't expect to find? Oh, yes. Me. <laughs> well, you certainly must have known that they were going to send you up when you volunteered. refer to their country as the land of the free. Unlike the majority of so-called underdeveloped countries, Thailand was never colonized by any foreign power. In only a dozen years, however, the face of Thailand was changed more drastically than in centuries before. Throughout the Vietnam War, from 1963 to 1975, the United States used Thailand not only as a rest and recuperation area for GIs in Vietnam, but also a landlocked aircraft carrier from which to bomb the neighboring countries of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. This is one view of the aftermath.
Okay, that's enough of a pump for me. Thanks a lot. Yo, I'm standing back there and I hear my name announced, and uh, this is the, uh, probably the largest crowd, live crowd I've ever been uh, in front of which I've been announced. It's thanks a lot. Not to mention, you know, the viewing, uh, the people on TV, and uh, it's a little overwhelming. And you hear your name, you know, Michael. And actually, to tell you the truth, fortunately, I'm pleased with my name. You know, I am. My, Michael's an okay name. Never got me into trouble. Because, man, you can, you know, if you got the wrong name, it can kind of mess your life up, you know. It can really turn things around. I mean, you know, when you think about it, the entire history of the world would have been different probably if, like, Hitler's first name would have been Biff. You can't bomb a guy named Biff, you know? <laughs> Heil Biff. <laughs> There's a jam coming over here. A lot of people in cars, right? I just got a car, another car. I hate my horn. I got this little horn, you know, a little wimpy horn. You know, eh, eh, oh, eh, you know? I didn't even know I had it, you know? I just get in a car, had an occasion to use it, go, eh, eh. Oh, fuck it. my horn. I got this little horn, you know? Because I, I, truthfully, I wish I had a horn, you know? I mean, like a horn. You know, the truck horn says, I'm not asking you, man. I'm telling you. Get out of my spot. You know what I'm saying? A horn that had a face. If a horn, you know, I got this little horn. My horn is essentially saying, pardon me, I think that was my spot. I think it was your... Uh, and you always talk loud in your car like they can hear you, you know? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very
All right. Listen, uh, I would have been out here a little bit sooner, but they gave me uh, the wrong dressing room, and I couldn't find any place to put my stuff. And I don't know how you are, but I need a place to put my stuff. So that's what I've been doing back there, just trying to find a place for my stuff. You know how important that is. That's the whole, that's the whole meaning of life, isn't it? Trying to find a place for your stuff. That's all your house is. Your house is just a place for your stuff. If you didn't have so much goddamn stuff, you wouldn't need a house. You could just walk around all the time. That's all your house is. It's a pile of stuff with a cover on it. You see that when you take off on an airplane and you look down and you see everybody's got a little pile of stuff. Everybody's got their own pile of stuff. And when you leave your stuff, you gotta lock it up. Wouldn't want somebody to come by and take some of your stuff. They always take the good stuff. They don't bother with that crap you're saving. Ain't nobody interested in your fourth grade arithmetic papers. They're looking for the good stuff. That's all your house is. It's a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. Now, sometimes, sometimes you've got to move. You've got to get a bigger house. Why? Too much stuff. You've got to move all your stuff. And maybe put some of your stuff in storage. Imagine that. There's a whole industry based on keeping an eye on your stuff. Enough about your stuff. Let's talk about other people's stuff. Did you ever notice when you go to somebody else's house, you never quite feel 100% at home? You know why? No room for your stuff. Somebody else's stuff is all over the place. And what awful stuff it is. Where did they get this stuff? And if you have to stay overnight at someone's house, you know, unexpectedly, and they give you a little room to sleep in that they don't use that often. Someone died in it 11 years ago. And they haven't moved any of his stuff. Or wherever they give you to sleep, usually right near the bed, there's a dresser, and there's never any room on the dresser for your stuff. Someone else's shit is on the dresser. Have you noticed that their stuff is shit and your shit is stuff? Get that off of there. Now, now, sometimes you go on vacation, you gotta bring some of your stuff with you. You can't bring all your stuff. Just the stuff you really like. The stuff that fits you well that month. Let's say you're gonna go to Honolulu. You're gonna go all the way to Honolulu. You gotta take two big bags of stuff. Plus your carry-on stuff, plus the stuff in your pockets. And you get all the way to Honolulu and you get in your hotel room and you start to put away your stuff. That's the first thing you do in a hotel room is put away your stuff. I'll put some stuff in here, put some stuff down there. Here's another place for some stuff here. I'll put some stuff over there. You put your stuff over there. I'm putting my stuff over here. Here's another place for some stuff. Hey, we got more places than we've got stuff. We're gonna have to buy more stuff! And you put all your stuff away and you know that you're thousands of miles from home and you don't quite feel at ease, but you know that you must be okay because you do have some of your stuff with you. And you relax in Honolulu on that basis. That's when your friend from Maui calls and says, hey, why don't you come over to Maui for the weekend? Spend a couple of nights over here. 
Oh, shit, no. Now what stuff do you bring? Right, you've got to bring an even smaller version of your stuff. Just enough stuff for a weekend on Maui. And you get over, and you're really spread out now. You've got shit all over the world. You've got stuff at home, stuff in storage, stuff in Honolulu, stuff in Maui, stuff in your pockets. Supply lines are getting longer and harder to maintain. But you get over to your friend's house in Maui and they give you a little place to sleep and there's a little window ledge or some kind of a small shelf and there's not much room on it, but it's okay because you don't have much stuff now. And you put what stuff you do have up there, you put your imported French toenail clippers, your odor eaters with the 45-day guarantee, your cinnamon-flavored dental floss, and your Afrin 12-hour decongestant nasal spray. And even though you're a long way from home, you know that you must be okay because you do have your Afrin 12-hour decongestant nasal spray. And you relax in Maui on that basis. That's when your friend says, Hey, I think tonight we'll go over to the other side of the island and stay at my friend's house overnight. Oh, shit, no! No! What do you bring? Now you just bring the things you know you're gonna need. Money, keys, comb, wallet, lighter, hanky, pen, cigarettes, contraceptives, Vaseline, whips, chains, whistles, dildos, and a book. Thank you very much.
burdo Solo bate Está la silingue Larga verte
little band of gnomes marched Shea northward until sunset. The veil man was exhausted when the march began, and by the time the group finally halted for the night, he immediately collapsed and was asleep before the gnomes had even finished binding his legs. The long trek took them from the banks of the unknown river northward into hill country west of the upper Anar forest bordering on the Northland. Travel became considerably rougher, the terrain changing from the flat grasslands of the Rab Plains into choppy rolling hillocks. After a time, the band found itself doing more climbing than walking, with constant changes of direction made to avoid the bigger hills. It was beautiful country, grasslands patched with small forests of aged shade trees, their bending limbs graceful in the light spring winds. But its beauty was lost on the exhausted veil man, who could only concentrate on putting one foot ahead of the other as his disinterested captors pushed him along without rest. By nightfall, the group was deep into the hill country, and had Shay been able to consult a map of the region, he would have discovered that they were camped directly east of Paranor. As it was, sleep came to him so fast that he could only remember dropping wearily to the grassy earth, and then nothing more. The industrious gnomes finished tying him, and then prepared a fire for their meager dinner. One gnome was placed on sentry duty, mostly out of habit, since they felt there was little to fear this far into their own homeland, and a second was ordered to keep a close watch over the sleeping captive. The gnome leader still did not realize who Shea was, nor did he realize the importance of the elf stones, though he was intelligent enough to conclude that they must be worth something. His plan was to take the veil man to Paranor, where he could consult with his superiors concerning the fate of both the youth and the stones. Perhaps they would know the significance of these matters. The gnome's only concern was doing the right thing in accordance with his orders to patrol this region, and beyond that duty, he did not care to know anything. The fire was completed in short order, and the gnomes ate a hastily prepared meal of bread and stripped meat. When the meal was finished, they gathered eagerly about the warm blaze and contemplated curiously the three small elf stones which the leader had produced for inspection at his followers' urging. The wizened yellow faces bent closer to the fire and to the outstretched hand of the leader where the stones twinkled brightly in the glowing light. One eager follower tried to touch one, but a stinging blow from his superior sent him sprawling back into the shadows. The gnome leader touched the stones curiously and rolled them about in his open palm as the others watched in fascination. Finally, the gnomes tired of the sport and the stones were put back in the small leather pouch and returned to the leader's tunic. A bottle of ale was broken out to ward off the chill of the night air as well as to aid the weary gnomes in forgetting their immediate troubles. The bottle was passed around freely and the little yellow soldiers laughed and joked far into the night, keeping the fire blazing for warmth. Even the lone sentry wandered in, knowing that his guard duty was unnecessary. At last the ale was gone and the weary hunters turned in, pulling up their blankets in a tight circle about the fire. The sentry even had presence of mind enough to throw a blanket over the sleeping captive, concluding that it would do no good to bring him into Paranor suffering from a fever. Moments later, the campsite was silent, all asleep save the sentry who stood drowsily in the shadows just beyond the light of the small campfire that was dying slowly into coals. Shea slept fitfully, his slumber disturbed by reoccurring nightmares of his harrowing flight with Flick and Menion to reach Culhaven and from there the ill-fated journey to reach Paranor. He relived in his dreams the battle with the Mistwraith, 
Feeling its cold, slimy grip about his body, experiencing terror at the touch of the deadly swamp waters lapping about his legs, he felt desperation creeping all through him as the three again became separated in the Black Oaks, only this time he was alone in the great forest, and he knew there was no way out. He would wander until he died there. He could hear the cries of the hunting wolves closing in about him as he struggled to run, dodging madly through the endless maze of giant trees. A moment later the scene changed, and the company stood in the ruins of the city in the middle of the Wolfstag Mountains. They were looking curiously at the metal girders, unaware of the danger lurking silently in the jungle beyond. Only Shay knew what was about to happen, but when he tried to warn the others, he found he could not speak. Then he saw the giant creature creeping forth from its concealment to strike the unsuspecting men, and he could not move to warn them. They seemed unaware of what was about to happen, and the creature attacked, a mass of black hair and teeth. Then Shay was in the river tossing and turning madly as he sought futilely to keep his head above the swift waters. Flat Black Plastic, coming to you live, directly live from the sunny mission. 21st in Florida, come on down. MutinyRadio.fm, support it. Thank you. It's nice to be wanted. I, I must uh, tell you, uh, for the people in the back, it's Dick Cavett. Okay. Um, I, uh, I can't believe that I'm here tonight. Uh, it's not Carnegie Hall that gets to me, but I can't believe that I know Groucho Marx and that he asked me to. Um, to introduce him tonight, and I'll do that as quickly as possible. I. I met Groucho Marx on a sunny Sunday afternoon about 12 years ago. He was coming uh, from the funeral of a great friend of his, a man he's often said was his god, George S. Kaufman. We met on the corner of, 50, of 81st and 5th, and I couldn't believe it, but he asked me to walk down 5th Avenue with him. And we stopped every so often so he could insult a doorman. <laughs> and uh, at when we got to the plaza where he was staying, I assumed that the dream was over and I was trying to think of a way to say goodbye. And he said, in that familiar soft voice that I knew first from the quiz show and then from the movies, well, you said, and he seemed like a nice young man and I'd like to have lunch with you. And uh, we had lunch. It was wonderful. I went home and wrote it down as much as I could remember of it. I remember it for dessert. The captain and the waiter both came over to take his dessert order. And uh, Groucho said, do you have any fruit you can recommend to the waiter? And I don't mean the captain here. Um, so uh, it was like that. The only, the only sad thing about Groucho's life is that there are so many thousands of funny things that have gone unrecorded. Luckily, there was someone along at the anti-Semitic country club when they told him he couldn't use the pool. And he asked, since my daughter's only half Jewish, could she go in up to her knees? Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, would, I 
thank you for him. Uh, there are a lot of profound things that should be said about Groucho, like the fact that his comedy achieves the level of great art, that he has all the gifts, I think, that a comedian can have. Some of them have a few of them, and he has them all. But uh, that's for people to write about. Um, I was asked to mention one thing. Please don't take any flash pictures. Uh, it makes Groucho dizzy, and, uh, and he could, uh, it's true, he could fall. And I, he wanted me to mention that, and I said, how can I say that and not alarm the audience? And he said, easy, tell them I'll drop dead if they do. So, he's, uh, he's serious, but not when you want him to be. <laughs> anyway, to get quickly to the part of the evening that you came and paid for, uh, I would first like to introduce uh, a few people that should be mentioned now. Uh, among them, Rufus T. Firefly, uh, J. T. Loophole, uh, J. T. Loophole. So hold the applause till the end, please. Uh, Dr. Hugo Z. Hackenbush, Otis B. Driftwood, and Captain Jeffrey Spaulding, the one, the only. Groucho.
we used to call them gumshoes because somebody had given them a pair of rubbers. In a nice way, I mean. <laughs> and that's his name, Gummo Marx. My name, of course, I never did understand. <laughs> I had an uncle named Julius. He was well over four feet. And I was named after him, because we were under some peculiar impression that he had money. As a matter of fact, my father wanted to throw him out of the house. But my mother said, no, no, I remember I read a story once in which a, a man was supposed to be broke. And when he died, he left a lot of money, so they named me Julius. He never worked anyhow, he was just in the house sitting there. Finally died. And he left a will. His will consisted of a cellular dicky, an eight ball, and three razor blades. Besides, he owed my father in right on.
ancestress and my weird luck and my tarot pack and my tarot pack I may be a bit of a Jew I have always been scared of you with your Luftwaffe your gobbledygook and your neat mustache and your Aryan eye bright blue Panzerman Panzerman oh you not God but a swastika so black no sky could squeak Every woman adores the fashion, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, and the picture I have of you is cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that, no not any less the black man who did my pretty red heart in peace. I was ten when they buried me. At twenty, I tried to die, and yet back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do. They pulled me out of the sack, and they stuck me together with food. And then I knew what to do. 
I made a model of you, a man in black with a mind camp look and a love of the rack and the screw, and I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root, the voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said to me, and drank my blood break seven years if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart, and the villagers never like you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through. Fever, 103. Pure, what does it mean? The tongues of hell are dull. Dull as the triple tongues of dull, fat Cerberus who wheezes at the gate. Incapable of licking clean the aguey tendon, the sin, the sin. Oh, Otto da Fe, the purple men, gold-crusted, thick with spleen, sit with their hooks and crooks and stoke the light. The tinder cries. The indelible smell of a snuffed candle. Love, love, the low smokes roll from me like Isadora's scarves. I'm in a fright one scarf will catch an anchor in the wheel. Such yellow sullen smokes make their own element. They will not rise, but trundle round the globe, choking the aged and the meek. The weak hothouse baby in its crib, the ghastly orchid hanging its hanging garden in the air. Devilish leopard, radiation turned it white and killed it in an hour. Greasing the bodies of adulterers like Hiroshima ash and eating in the sin, the sin. Darling, all night I have been flickering off on, off, on. The sheets grow heavy as a lecher's kiss. Three days, three nights. Lemon water, chicken water, water make me rich. I am too pure for you or anyone. Your body hurts me as the world hurts God. I am a lantern. My head a moon of Japanese paper, my gold-beaten skin infinitely delicate and infinitely expensive. Does not my heat astound you and my light? All by myself I am a huge camellia, glowing and coming and going, flush on flush. I think I am going up. I think I may rise. The beads of hot metal fly, and I, love, I am a pure acetylene virgin, attended by roses, by kisses, by cherubim, by whatever these pink things mean. Not you, nor him, nor him, nor him. Myself dissolving, oh, cherubim, by whatever these pink things mean. Not you, nor him, nor him, nor him. Thank you.
Black Blazic, MutinyRadio.fm
lady's reward. Lady, lady, never start conversation toward your heart. Keep your pretty words serene. Never murmur what you mean. Show yourself by word and look, swift and shallow as a brook. Be as cool and quick to go as a drop of April snow. Be as transient and as gay as a cherry flower in May. Lady, lady, never speak of the tears that burn your cheek. She will never win him whose words had shown she feared to lose. Be you wise and never sad, you will get your lovely lad. Never serious be, nor true, and your wish will come to you. And if that makes you happy, kid, you'll be the first it ever did. Plea. Secrets, you said, would hold us two apart. You'd have me know of you your least transgression. And so, the intimate places of your heart kneeling, you bared to me as in confession. Softly you told of loves that went before, of clinging arms, of kisses gladly given. Luxuriously clean of heart once more, you rose up then and stood before me, shriven. When this, my day of happiness is through, and love that blooms so fair turns brown and brittle, there is a thing that I shall ask of you, I who have given so much and asked so little. Someday, when there's another in my stead, again you'll feel the need of absolution, and you will go to her and bow your head and offer her your past as contribution. When, with your list of loves, you overcome her, for heaven's sake, keep this one secret from her. The Red Dress. I always saw, I always said, if I were grown and free, I'd have a gown of reddest red, as fine as you could see, to wear out walking, sleek and slow, upon a summer day. And there'd be one to see me so, and flip the world away. And he would be a gallant one, with stars behind his eyes, and hair like metal in the sun, and lips too warm for lies. I always saw us gay and good, high honored in the town. Now I am grown to womanhood. old lady in lavender silk. I was 77 come August. I shall shortly be losing my bloom. I've experienced zephyr and raw gust and symbolical flood and simoon. When you come to this time of abatement, to this passing from summer to fall, it is manners to issue a statement as to what you got out of it all. So I'll say, though reflection unnerves me, and pronouncements I dodge as I can, that I think, if my memory serves me, there was nothing more fun than a man. In my youth, when the crescent was too wan to embarrass with beams from above, by the aid of a local Don Juan, I fell into the habit of love. 
and I learned how to kiss and be merry, and education left better unsung. My neglect of the waters, Pierian, was a scandal when Grandma was young. Though the shabby unbalanced the splendid, and the bitter outmeasured the sweet, I should certainly do as I then did, were I given the chance to repeat. For contrition is hollow and wraithful, and regret is no part of my plan. And I think, if my memory is faithful, there was nothing more fun than a man. One perfect rose, a single flower he sent me since we met. senators uh, during this recess in Congress. Sir, uh, may I speak to you? Okay, try. Right. <laughs> uh, see, see uh, you can do it. <laughs> you can also read my line. Yes, sir. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Mm -hmm. Sir, they say that... Well, who uh, says? They. Oh, I just wanted to pin it down. That's <laughs> they say that the world... The, uh, sir? Yes. They say that the... Excuse uh, me, I was looking at a constituent. Yes. <laughs> sir, they, they say that the world is in a state of grave crisis. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know that. You didn't know that there was a world crisis? Well, I've been out of town. <laughs> Sir, to get to another subject, if I may, fast. Yeah. Would you say that the manifestations of our current fiscal position jeopardize our international fiduciary relationships?
woman who's helped put the axe back in sex. She's been called Grandma Freud, the Bavarian Charo, the Mary Munchkin of masturbation. 
goddess of contraception, the diva of, well, you know, the only woman who can say penis and not make it sound like a snail wearing an army helmet. Here she is, straight from good sex, Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Well, good evening, Dr. Ruth. <laughs> you know, darling, this... This benefit for the homeless is terrific because without a home, people have no place to have sex. Isn't that right, Larry? <laughs> right as always, Dr. Ruth. <laughs> so what do we do tonight, Larry? Something spicy and stimulating? Well, you know I always find you stimulating, Dr. Ruth. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what Ozzy Osbourne said to me when I sat in his lap. <laughs> Well, tonight we're going to take some questions from the audience, but first I'd like to tell everyone that on April 3rd, Dr. Ruth will be appearing at Oral Roberts University. <laughs> then, on the weekend of the 5th, Dr. Ruth will be hosting the Dr. Ruth Invitational Miniature Golf Tournament at Lake Tahoe. <laughs> then, Passover weekend, Dr. Ruth will be doing two shows a night at the beautiful Mount Airy Lodge, your host with the most in the Poconos. That's right, Larry. And the week after that, you and I will be at the Roxy opening for the Hooters. <laughs> the Hooters. <laughs> I love that name, <laughs> Well, Dr. Ruth, let's take some questions from our audience right now, okay? Terrific. I love to hear other people's sex problems. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. You know, Larry, it's very important to feel good about your sexual organs. You should be able to look at your penis and say, hello, you look uh, let's see, Dr. Ruth. I think we have a question right over there. Uh, yeah, yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Sean, and I'm from Ohio. <laughs> and like, I'd really like to say that my boyfriend and I really, really love your show. I mean, like, it's the only thing to watch, especially since, like, they're showing the uh, spring break from Daytona on MTV, God. <laughs> Thank you, Sean from Ohio. I love to hear that. <laughs> okay, so anyways, ever since my boyfriend saw you on David Lee... No. Oh, yes, of course. I need your undivided attention. Oh, yes, sir. Very Ab good. Now, Absolutely. I want to talk to you about this. My organization, now I'm talking about a company that has over 2,000 employees spread over six different branch offices around the country. Every June in a different city. Yes, I And this year we're going to have it in Ohio. Oh, yes. So I'd like to know am I too late to book an affair in your Marriott in Toledo? Excuse now, me. I need the big one downtown. Now I figure we'll need, oh, to rent uh, the one or maybe both oh. towers. I'm not sure. And of course, the ballroom. Sir, you know, sir. Be in, like at the dances that we get six, seven, yes. Sir, you're, you're calling to reserve a room at the Marriott? Yes, I am. I'm sorry, this is this is comic relief, all right? We're, we're collecting... Well, you mean this is not the 800 number for the Marriott? No, no, I'm very sorry, it's not... Oh, this is, is there someone there who can help me? No, I, I actually, there isn't. I, I wonder... I'm going to be very disappointed. Well, I know, but could you, just, could you just hold on for a second? Well, hang on. I'll, I'll get right back to you, okay. Just fine, okay. Wait, okay. Okay. Comic relief? I want to order a hunt tonight. Comic Hello. relief? This is Emily Latella. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, Miss Latella, I can hear you. Hello? I hear you. I would like to make a contribution to Comet Relief. I'll tell you, I was around when Holly's Comet appeared the last time. He just had around 1904. As a matter of 
Yes, I understand. We need some relief from this crazy comet. It's outrageous. Why, if Halley wants to be seen so much, why doesn't he show up more often and a little closer for heaven's sake? Uh, excuse me. It's a menace, I tell you. Excuse me, ma'am. You see, that's comic relief, not comet. Comet. It's a drive to help raise money for the homeless. The homeless? No, the homeless. <laughs> well, that's very different. Damn thing. Yes, I understand. We need some relief from this crazy comet. It's outrageous. Why, if Hallie wants to be seen so much, why doesn't he show up more often and a little closer for heaven's sake? Uh, excuse me. It's a menace, I tell you. Excuse me, ma'am. You see, that's comic relief, not comet. Comet. It's a drive to help raise money for the homeless. The homeless? No, the His close friend was Marshal P. Wilder, who was a hunchback. And they were walking down Fifth Avenue and they came to a synagogue. And Khan turned to Wilder and he said, uh, Marshal, you know I used to be a Jew. Marshal said, really? I used to be a hunchback. Now we get the W.C. Fields. He was a friend of mine. He was a great drunk. And if they'd have had marijuana in those days, I'm sure he'd have been using it. And he lived in San Fernando Valley. And he always carried a BB gun. <laughs> and he sat in the bushes, and when the tourists would go past, he would shoot at them. <laughs> One day, he allowed me in his house. And he had a ladder there, and it led up to an attic. And in this attic, he had $50,000 worth of whiskey, unopened cases of whiskey. And I said to him, Bill, what do you get that booze there for? We haven't had prohibition in 25 years. He says, it may come back. <laughs> Fields was doing a picture many years ago with a kid named Baby Leroy. And in those days, you had to have a nurse on the set. This was one of the rules in the movie industry. So the nurse had to go to the bathroom. Even nurses do that occasionally. <laughs> and Fields says, look, I'll take care of the kid. You just go to the bathroom. And when she had gone, 
He took a bottle of booze out of his back pocket and got Baby Leroy dead drunk. <laughs> and they had to close the show for the movie for three days until he sobered up. There used to be a girl actress in Hollywood. She was an actress, a very pretty one, too. And she always wore an anklet. And I have it around here. And on this anklet, it said, Heavens Above. She did quite some business with that anklet. Well, you want me to leave the stage? I think we'll both go, yeah. Well, I'll go off. Thank you. 
same vivacity was gone from her. In silence, she unfolded her napkin and took up her soup spoon. Well, Gerald said. Well, Mr. Marnett said. Getting much warmer out, isn't it, Mr. Foster said. Notice it? It is at that, Gerald said. Well, we're about due for warm weather. Yes, we ought to expect it now, Mr. Marnett said. Any day now. Oh, it'll be here, Mr. Foster said. It'll come. I love spring, said Miss Wilmoth. I just love it. Gerald looked deep into his soup plate. The two young men looked at her. Darn good time of year, Mr. Marnett said. Certainly is. And how it is, Mr. Foster said. They ate their soup. There was champagne all through dinner. Miss Wilmoth watched Mary fill her glass, none too full. The wine looked gay and pretty. She looked about the table before she took her first sip. She remembered Camilla's voice and the men's laughter. Well, she cried, here's a health, everybody. The guests looked at her. Gerald reached for his glass and gazed at it as intently as if he held a champagne glass for the first time. The old man drank. Well, Mr. Wilson, your patients seem to be getting along pretty well, Miss Whitmore. I should say they do, she said. And they're pretty nice patients, too. Aren't they, Mr. Wilson? They certainly are, Gerald said. That's right. They certainly are, Mr. Barnett said. That's what they are. Well, you must meet all sorts of people in your work, I suppose. Must be pretty interesting. Oh, sometimes it is, Miss Wilmore said. It depends on the people. Her words fell from her lips, clear and separate, sterile as if it each had been freshly swamped with classic acid solution. In her ears rang the man's light, insolent roar. That's right, Mr. Foster said. Everything depends on the people, doesn't it? It always does, wherever you go, no matter what you do. Still, it must be a wonderful, interesting world. Wonderful. I see, Gerald said, and they think they've found a new cure for spinal meningitis. five weeks. Camilla was pronounced well, so well that she could have dined downstairs on the last few nights of Miss Wilmoth's stay, had she been able to support the fardel of dinner at the table with the trained nurse. I really couldn't dine opposite that face, she told Gerald. You go amuse Horsey at dinner, stupid. You must be good at it by now. All right, I will, darling, he said. But God keep me when she asks for another lump of sugar from holding it out to her on my palm. Only two more nights, Camilla said, and then Thursday, Nana'll be here, and she'll be gone forever. Forever sweet is my favorite word in the language, Gerald said. Nana was the round and competent Scottish woman who had nursed Camilla through her childhood and was scheduled to engineer the unknowing Deanne through hers. She was a comfortable woman, easy to have in the house a servant and knew it. Only two more nights. 
Gerald went down to dinner whistling a good old tune. The old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. Ain't what she used to be. Ain't what she used to be. Gerald was elated all the day of his Wilmore's departure. He had a holiday feeling, a last day of school jubilation with none of its faint regret. He left his office early, stopped at a florist shop, and went home to Camilla. Nana was installed in the nursery, but Miss Wilmoth had not yet left. She was in Camilla's room, and he saw her for the second time out of uniform. She wore a long brown coat and a brown rubbed velvet hat of no definite shape. Obviously, she was in the middle of the embarrassments of farewell. The melancholy of her face made it so like a horse's, but the hat above it was preposterous. Why, there's Mr. Kruger, she cried. Oh, good evening, Miss Wilmoth, he said. Well, ah, oh, hello, darling. How are you, sweet? Like these? He laid a florist box in Camilla's lap. In it were strange little yellow roses, the stems and leaves and tiny soft thorns, all of blood red. Miss Wilmoth gave a little squeal at the sight of them. Oh, the darlings, she cried. Oh, the buffles. And these are for you, Miss Wilmoth, he said. He made himself face her and held out to her a square, smaller box. Why, Mr. Kruger, she said, for me, really? Why, really, Mr. Kruger? She opened the box and found four gardenias, with green foil and pale green ribbon holding them together. Oh, now, really, Mr. Kruger, she said. Why, I never in all my life. Oh, now, you shouldn't have done it. Really, you shouldn't. Well, I just don't know how to begin to thank you. Why, I just, well, I just adore them. Gerald made sounds designed to convey the intelligence. He was glad she liked them, that it was nothing that she was welcome. Her squeaks of thanks made red rise back of his ears. They're nice ones, Camilla said. Put them on, Miss Wilmore. And these are awfully cunning, Jerry. Sometimes you have your points. Oh, I didn't think I'd wear them, Miss Wilmore. I thought I'd just take them in a box like this, so they'd keep better. And it's such a, a nice box. I'd like to have it. I, I'd like to keep it. She looked down at the flowers. Gerald was in sudden horror that she might bring her head down close to them and toss it back high, crying, was I, was I, was I, at them the while. Honestly, she said, I just can't take my eyes off them. The woman is mad, Camilla said. It's the effect of living with us, I suppose. I hope we haven't ruined you for life, Miss Wilmore. Why, Mrs. Kruger, Miss Wilmore cried. Now, real. I was just telling Mrs. Kruger, Mr. Kruger, that I'd never been on a pleasanter case. I've just had the time of my life all the time I was here. I don't know when I... Honestly, I can't stop looking at my poses. They're so lovely. Well, I just can't thank you for all you've done. Well, we ought to thank you, Miss Wilmore, Gerald said. We certainly ought. I really hate to say
All the children say we don't know the here. No, we don't need another here. Thank you, Tina Turner. Flat Black Plaza Community Radio FM. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. Peace on.